At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we return to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove family has been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Good morning, church family. Uh, My name is Ryan Nast. I'm our student ministries director here. If you're interested in finding more how to pray for Hope Week or serving at Hope Week, I am the one to come and talk to, or anything student ministry related. Um, Would love to, to fill you in on what's going on there. But today we have lots of text to cover as we dive into the final message of this series. We're covering 14 chapters of scripture today from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. And so now you might be seeing why the right balls went on uh, sabbatical when they did. Uh, Of course, I'm just kidding. But just uh, a reminder to be praying for them for sure as they are resting and uh, that the Lord would just uh, use this time uh, to to help them uh, grow in him. Uh, before coming back to us um, for ministry. But the good news is, while we are covering so many chapters of Scripture this morning, it's a very well-known story. And that's the story of Joseph that we're going to be looking at, one that maybe we've heard uh, tons of times before growing up in Sunday school, or, or maybe you're not as familiar with it, and that's okay, because we're going to start by giving just a little bit of an overview this morning. I think that's going to be helpful for us because there is no way we are going to be able to cover every single verse in this passage that we're looking at today. And so before we dive into the text in this message, uh, let me just uh, begin by, by telling you what's gonna, what, we're, what we're going to see, kind of just the, the, the bones of the story, if you will. So it's, we're going to pick up in Genesis 37, and in the first few verses there, it becomes pretty clear that, uh, that Jacob, who is Joseph's father is playing favorites, that Joseph is his favorite son. That's the the language it even uses. And he gives him this robe of many colors, and it really uh, makes his brothers jealous in many ways. Then we hear of Joseph telling of these dreams that he's been having about how he's going to be greater than his brothers. And this does not help the situation at all. It ends up uh, allowing these brothers to grow extremely jealous at what had happened to the point where they're serving in the field, or they're, they're working in the field one day with him, and they get this idea to sell him into slavery, which we'll look more at in just a little bit. It's a clearly um, not exactly what we would think to do when we're in the middle of a, a conflict as such. Um, and maybe we even, it even leads us to ask the question like, where is God in all of this? Why would he allow this to happen to Joseph? But as we see, God does indeed have a plan, and we see this uh, beginning to unfold in Genesis 39 through 41 as Joseph rises to the top of every place he's at while he's in slavery in Egypt. First, it's Potiphar's home. He rises to the very top there. Then he's wrongfully accused and thrown in prison, and he's there for a number of years where he is, uh, once again, has the opportunity to rise to the top there. The, uh, and uh, and it, this leads him to the opportunity of actually being brought before the Pharaoh himself and to, to interpret his dream in order to, uh, to, to make sense of all of this. Basically, Joseph warns the Pharaoh of this famine that's coming and what to do as a result of that. And Pharaoh puts him second command over everything in Egypt. 
In Genesis 42 through 45, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt because this famine is not just in Egypt, but over the whole world. And so Joseph, uh, they, they, they are sent to Joseph to try and, uh, and survive this famine. Joseph recognizes them immediately. However, they do not recognize him. And so Joseph begins to test him. Now, we don't know all of the reasons for this. Sure, it could have something to do with why he was in Egypt to begin with. But either way, we do know that God used these series of tests in order to bring about the reconciliation of that family. And, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing we see there. After the next few chapters, we see uh, Jacob uh, pronouncing blessing upon his, his sons as they, are, they move to Egypt. And ultimately, we also see Jacob's death. And after Jacob dies, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers are once again a bit nervous about what's going to happen. Is Joseph going to take uh, what they did uh, to him out against them? And that's what leads us to that amazing uh, passage of scripture that we heard read this morning, um, and specifically there in chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says that God meant this evil that was brought against him for good. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We won't look at every verse, but that's where we're going to be this morning as we conclude this series today called Family, Why Bother? And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at various conflicts that have taken place within the book of Genesis, which there's a lot of them, a lot of these family conflicts. And it's a good thing to see what Scripture has to say because we all have those in our own lives. We all have conflicts that exist within our families. And sometimes family life can feel a bit chaotic, can't it? It can feel like uh, it's just out of control in many ways. And I don't think any of us here enjoy living in this kind of chaos. I know I don't. Um, but at the same time, uh, we all experience it in our lives. Now, this wasn't a family chaotic moment that I have this morning to share with you, but one of the most chaotic things I ever experienced in my life took place during my senior year in college. Uh, the Cubs, uh, I, was, I was living in Chicago at the time, let me start there, and the Chicago Cubs were on their way to winning the World Series that year, which was a big deal because their baseball team had never won the championship uh, in like 100 years. It had been over 100 years since this had last happened, so it was a big deal in Chicago as this is going on, as the, everybody's wondering, are they going to pull it off? And in the final game of that, that series that took place, it was becoming clear that that was going to indeed happen. And so some of my friends from school and I decided to make a beeline to Wrigley Field where the Cubs played and to just be outside the stadium cheering on with the rest of Chicago as they won the World Series. It was impossible getting there because public transportation uh, wasn't taking people that far at that point, so we had to walk a majority of the way. And once we got there, it was extremely crowded, extremely crowded. Like there were points where you couldn't uh, look one way or another without running into somebody. It was impossible at that point. And when the Cubs officially won the series that year, and the, the sign right outside really feels just flashing, Cubs win, Cubs win, it was just, it was an amazing sight to behold as everything uh, was taking place. But it wasn't long before chaos ensued and just broke out, mass chaos around us. People were panicking, wondering how to get out of there at that point. One of my friends actually got wedged between two people so much so that she couldn't even breathe at one point, which was a scary thing. Another one of my friends uh, got hit in the head with a glass bottle. I mean, the street lights were coming down. It was intense. 
It was intense. And it was a scary thing to be a part of in that moment. I will say we all made it out safely, and we praise God for that. But we all agreed we would never do something like that again because of how chaotic it, everything was. And perhaps there are times in our lives where the people around us, whether they're in our families or not, feel just as messy and chaotic as the situation that I just described. When relationships feel just fractured to the point where they're, even if we try to pick up the pieces, they're just not going to, to fully be back to where they were. When tensions are so high within our families that it feels like World War III could break out at any moment in our homes. When difficult decisions need to be made, maybe it's over a loved one's health. Maybe it's over how to raise your kids or what it looks like to listen to your parents in those moments. It can be difficult. Maybe it's something that is more or less severe than any of these examples even. But it just still, still feels impossible, the chaos and messiness of family life. It might lead you to asking the question, is my family just too messy? Is my family just too messy? And if you've been there before or asked something similar to that before, you're not alone. Lots of us here, probably all of us here have felt that way at one point or another. But today we're going to see that God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. That God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. We're going to look at a pretty dysfunctional family. Probably the most dysfunctional family in the book of Genesis uh, maybe even one of the most dysfunctional families in the history of our world. We're going to see that in Genesis 37, starting there. So if you haven't opened your Bibles there with me yet, uh, open with me to Genesis 37 uh, as we begin uh, looking a little bit closer at the text. But before we dive too much further, let's, let's talk about some of the context that's going on here. In case you didn't know, um, Abraham was somebody that uh, was descended, this, Jacob was descended from Abraham. That was, Jacob was, was uh, Abraham's grandson, and God promised Abraham that, he was going, that through him he was going to bless the world. And this promise that was given down to Abraham was extended on to, to Isaac, who then becomes the focus of Genesis after his father Abraham. And then it extends on to Jacob, who is kind of the focus of Genesis at that point. And so now it might, as, as Genesis is turning its attention to Joseph, it might be something that we conclude that this promise has continued on through Joseph. However, that is not exactly what's, what, what happens. As we will see, as, 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 as can be seen in Genesis 49, as Jacob is pronouncing blessing on his sons, this, this, actually, this promise actually continues through his other, one of his other sons, Judah. And that becomes clear if we were to look at the, the lineage of Jesus, that Jesus is descended from Judah, that we can see that in the New Testament. So there was much promise that was handed down to this family, much promise and blessing, but for as much promise and blessing as there were, there was also much dysfunction going on amongst them. We see that through the life of Jacob, the, the father of these, these sons, I mean, pretty, from a pretty early age, he was known for his deception. We see that in his relationship with his brother Esau. We see that in his relationship with his uncle Laban, who is even more deceitful than Jacob. And we see that, that a lot of that relationship with his uncle Laban is a reason for why Jacob has multiple wives. 
Jacob's sons were certainly influenced by all of this deceit and dysfunction that was already existing in their father's life. But as for, for as dysfunctional as that family was, the beautiful thing is that God reigns over the chaos of their relationships, and he does for us as well. One of the first things that stands out as we come to this passage today is the family's chaotic condition. The family's chaotic condition. It's not hard to see the, the, uh, the problems that are brewing within this family, even from an early stage in the game. Remember, uh, we talked about the favoritism and jealousy that existed there. And that can be seen in the first few verses of Genesis 37. But picking up in Genesis 37, 23 through 28, it says this. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. The pit was empty, and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming coming uh, from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, our, let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders, by, traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So there's this favoritism. There's this jealousy that is going on within this family early on. And this leads the brothers one day as they are working out in the field with Joseph to figure out what to do. And one of their first thoughts was, Let's kill Joseph. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into this pit. They ultimately decide against that, but they still throw him into the pit. And all of a sudden, they are seeing these people pass by as they're sitting down to eat. We see that there um, from the first few verses that we were looking at there, um, verses 20, specifically verse 25. And they're, they're, all of a sudden, Judah, one of their brothers, gets this bright idea. We see that him ask this question in verse 26. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? And so right away, Joseph, jo, Judah is asking, you know, should we, should we save, or he'd kind of save Joseph, it might sound like. But that's not exactly what his, his heart is behind this. He's more like, let's, let's see if we can make a quick buck out of this, right? Can we, can we sell him? Can we sell him and, and profit out of this whole, whole ordeal? I mean, Essentially, he was, uh, it would have been the same effect, though, right, as killing him. They don't have to worry about their brother anymore. He's not a part of their life. That's really what the end goal was. And plus, maybe then some of the guilt of killing him wouldn't be on them, even though they had no idea what was going to happen when he was sold into slavery, sold into Egypt. And in effect, that's exactly what they tell their dad, is that he's dead, that some animal has mauled him, has has. has killed him, which leaves Jacob absolutely devastated. Really, Judah and his brothers here are, are taking a page out of Jacob's book of deception. It's pure wickedness from, Ju from Judah and the, these brothers. It's horrible. It's, 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 it's terrible that it would even come to this. It's tough. It's a difficult thing in our lives when we, when we experience loss. I'm sure those of you who have experienced that know exactly what I'm talking about. And earlier this week, my heart broke for a couple of different families 
Three years ago, one of my high school football teammates was, a t- was brutally attacked and murdered in Detroit. And my heart, the trial took place this, this last week for, for that. And my heart broke for both of these families that were involved. For this family that lost their son, they'd never see him again. They'd never have that, that relationship at all with him. And for the family whose son was on trial, their relationship was about to look very, very different with their son for the rest of their lives. It was a difficult and hard thing to watch. Both of these families devastated and hurt, much like what Jacob was probably feeling in that moment. I don't know that, 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 that his brothers were feeling that quite yet. Text doesn't fully say, but they, their, their actions certainly fractured their family, hurt their family. It's not something we would have expected from the one who was going to carry on God's promise, Judah. Yet a lot of what we know of Judah's life early on in these chapters that we're looking at today is just pure and unspeakable wickedness. We don't have time to dive into all of that. I encourage you to do that at some point. But here's the thing. We can't just point our finger at Judah and his brothers and say, man, what they did is terrible without thinking ourselves that we are capable of wickedness as well. We are capable of terrible, terrible wickedness and unspeakable wickedness in our own lives. And God doesn't want us to deceive ourselves to think otherwise than that, to think that we aren't capable of of just unspeakable wickedness and sin in our lives because we are. The same is true of us. So those lies that we might say to try to get out of getting in trouble, we shouldn't do those types of things. The justifying of our actions by saying it's really not all that bad, maybe even taking a step further and comparing ourselves to others and what they're doing is worse, we shouldn't do that. We should own our mistakes rather than deceiving others, rather than trying to deflect our sin onto other people. Because that's what we see here is this family's chaotic condition that was left unchecked and spiraled into something terrible. Yet through all of this, another thing stands out within our passage, and that is God's providential control. We see God's providential control here. Yes, Joseph's family life was incredibly chaotic and dysfunctional, but yet God was not passive in this, these moments. He was still acting and completely in control. We might, we might need some evidence for that. Maybe some of us here today are like, how, how is God working in the midst of all of this? Well, we're gonna see some of those ways here in just a second. But first, let's read Genesis 41, 9 through 16, which says this. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he t- when, we, told him and, uh, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it, became, it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now remember, we've talked about how throughout his time in Egypt, and we can read about this in verses or chapters 39 through 41, that Joseph has repeatedly risen to the top, that God's hand has been on Joseph to rise to the top of wherever situation he finds himself in. First is, is Potiphar's house, where he's put in charge of everything. But then he doesn't take long for, his, uh, for him to be wrongfully accused, wrongfully accused and thrown into jail because of what Potiphar's wife had to say about him. And he was there for some time, for, for a while. And as he's there, he rises to the top there as well, is put in charge of things, allows for him to run into contact with the chief cupbearer and baker of the Pharaoh himself. They have dreams while they're there. And that's what the chief cupbearer is referring to when he says a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard there in verse 12. We told him our dreams and he interpreted it. It happened exactly what, or exactly as he said. But also notice in verse nine, the chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. I remember my offenses today. That's what the chief cupbearer tells him. See, Joseph, when he had interpreted these dreams, was pleading with the cupbearer. When you are restored to, to, to Pharaoh, when you are restored to your position, remind Pharaoh of, my, of who I am. Let him know that what I've, I haven't done anything to be where I'm supposed, where I'm here, why I'm here. And he forgets. He forgets for two whole years. That's what we see in the text. And as, as soon as Pharaoh learns of Joseph, he sends for Joseph. He brings him before, before him, tells him of this dream that he has had. And Joseph explains to him that there is going to be seven years where there's going to be plenty of food in Egypt, where things will be really well. But that's going to be followed by seven years of famine where there will be nothing, nothing. And he shares a plan for how to handle this situation with the Pharaoh, to which Pharaoh says, I'm going to put you in charge of all of this. See to it that this is done. Take care of it. The only person you're going to be second to in all of Egypt is me. That's what the Pharaoh tells him. And I doubt that Joseph saw all of this right away, right? Like when he sold into Egypt, I don't think he realized exactly that this was gonna come about exactly like this. Remember, he's pleading with this cupbearer. He understands that what he's in prison for, what he's in Egypt for, was unjust, that it wasn't right. And he probably was, was, uh, was getting to that point where it felt hopeless. Maybe it felt like a hurricane was headed towards him. I'm sure we've all had moments like that where it feels like that within the chaos of our own lives, where it just feels like a hurricane is heading towards us while, we are, well, while we're just doing everything we can to stay afloat. Wave after wave after wave just keeps crashing over us, and we're like, can we even, are we gonna even survive this? Might feel that way. Understanding God's providence in the midst of these situations especially when life is difficult, when it's hard, when trials just seem to never end. It's hard. It's hard to trust God's providence in these moments. Yet God wants us to believe that he is very much in control, even when these types of things are going on. And he also wants us to believe that we can trust him 
as these things are happening to us. That's not always easy, especially when we're like, man, but what happens when my brother or sister tells a lie about me and I end up getting in trouble for it? Or parents, when you're like, my kids just don't seem to listen. I don't know how to get their attention. I don't know how to, to, to raise them um, to, in a way that honors and glorifies God well all the time. Maybe you're, you're, you're in various disagreements with people, whether it's an extended family issue or an immediate with your, with family issue. All of these things can be difficult at times and feel overwhelming at times, and rightfully so. But we know that God is still in control in the midst of these things, that he still cares about what's going on, and he, that he can accomplish what seems impossible in the midst of all of these things. So we see with Joseph here, right? I don't think he would have seen from the very beginning that God had this greater plan to save people from starvation. Yet he's used and at the very front of how the world reacts to this problem. And we see God's providential control in his life. And I think another thing that stands out as a result of that is Christ's redeeming work. We see Christ's redeeming work within this passage. No, Jesus had not yet come to earth. He's not a character that we see interacting with Joseph or his brothers within this passage. It's not till way down the line that Jesus is going to come. But at the same time, this whole story that we look at today is meant to point us to Jesus. It's meant to point us to Jesus and his redeeming work. And we see this happening, or at least beginning even, in verses, chapter 45, verses four through eight, which say this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's back up just a little bit here because here we see this amazing reunion with Joseph and his brothers. But this isn't the first time in this passage where they begin to, to be, to, or when they, when they run into each other. In chapter 42, Jacob sends his sons to go and get grain from Egypt because he had heard that it was there. And what he didn't realize was he was sending his sons to basically be on a collision course to be reunited with their brother Joseph. However, when they get there, they don't recognize Joseph. They don't realize that this is their brother. But he knows exactly who they are. He sees who they are and he begins to test them. Now, we don't know exactly why he's doing this. Perhaps it has something to do with the fact that they sold him into Egypt. But we don't really know. At the same time, what we do know is that God uses this series of events for good. To lead these brothers to, in my opinion, repentance. And basically, Joseph reveals himself here after this point. He reveals to himself in, in verse four, and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He's revealed himself 
to, their, to his brothers. And I think this was as a result of how Judah, Judah's, Judah gave a speech in, in, verse, in chapter 44. And it was a speech that seems to signal the repentance of these brothers. See, Joseph had tested them. He had set Benjamin up, one of his younger brothers, to basically take the fall for something he didn't do. And he was going to see how his brothers responded. Basically, Judah says there in chapter 44 in this long speech that he wasn't going to let that happen. That instead, he asks Joseph to let him take the fall, to let him take the punishment for Benjamin. And this moved Joseph to the point of tears. He had to leave the room and he wept over everything that had just taken place, over this repentance of his brothers. And it, and it leads him to the point where he tells them exactly who he is. But notice what it says there in verse 8. Right at the beginning there, it says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He doesn't see them as being the, the even though they had committed this unspeakable evil, as them being the reason for why he was where he was. But God was the one who had providentially placed him where he was. And he forgives them. He doesn't reveal himself to hold what they did over him. No, he forgives them. And this isn't the only time that he forgives them. As Joseph's family is, makes the move and transition to Egypt, Jacob then begins to bless these brothers. And then ultimately he does pass away. And when jo Jacob passes away, his brothers become Nervous yet again, is Joseph going to take this out on us? Is he going to, uh, to, to take matters into his own hands for what we have done to him? And we see in chapter 50, verses 19 through 20, that that is not the case. So we see, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's a profound statement by Joseph that he sees God's providence in this and saying that it is, yes, you, you intended these actions for evil, but God meant your evil actions for good, to bring about good, to bring about deliverance for, for this world from starvation, from not, from not being able to live because they had not enough food to eat. And all of this should point us to Jesus. See, Jesus came to earth and he, yes, brought about deliverance as well, deliverance for sin, but he also understood relational pain and drama and all of that. He experienced rejection in his life. He was abused. He was sentenced to death for something that he did not do. And his death cleanses us from our sin. That when we claim Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives, believing in his death and resurrection, we are saved from our sins. When we see our sin and repent and seek forgiveness for these actions, Jesus delivers that to us. So look to Jesus as your substitute. Recognize that he is the one who paid the penalty for your sins. That he is the one who brought about deliverance from our biggest problem the sin that we deal with in our lives. See, Joseph's experience is similar to Jesus's. His suffering brought about deliverance, just as Jesus's suffering brings about deliverance, but in a far greater way. 
deliverance from sin. Doesn't mean that we won't experience dysfunction in our lives. It still will exist, unfortunately, because that's the sinful world we live in. But we can look to Jesus in these moments, knowing that he understands exactly what we are going through, that he himself has gone through it. And so God wants us to see here and to know that he sees us in our struggles, that he sees us and is with us in the midst of these things that we are going through. And as a result of the peace that we have been given in Christ, we should seek peace with others with those in our families, when it, even when it might not seem possible. We should do everything in our power to make sure that World War III doesn't happen within our families. That as it's looking to happen within our homes, maybe it means not making a big deal out of something that really isn't all that big of a deal. Maybe it means having the hard conversation because something is a big deal and needs to be addressed. It might look like th- those types of things, but either way, We need to act in ways that point people to the hope that we have in Christ. The hope that has delivered us from our sin and brought us into life with God. That doesn't mean that chaos won't prevail at times. That things may end up getting even more messy. Yes, Jesus came to save us from our sin, but the beautiful thing is he's also coming back one day. And when he comes back, He's going to restore everything to the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. And so things like sin will be no more. Things like chaos will be no more. The family dysfunction that we experience now will be gone. It will be made right. Things will not be the way that they are currently. And I know that when we're in the midst of some of these things currently, it's not easy. Sometimes you just need to cling to Jesus in those moments. And I pray that you will. It might seem like things are just getting worse. But in those moments, keep holding on to him. Remember that the trials of this life are temporary. Because Jesus is going to return. He is going to come back. He is going to make everything right. In the way it was supposed to be from the beginning of time. And when he does make this change, when this happens in this world, it's not going back to how it is now. It will be that way forever. And this is a beautiful hope that we have. But for those of you here today who are struggling currently because family life is just chaos, know that we are here, that we love you here at Woodside Plymouth that we are praying for you, that we love you, that we want to come alongside you in these things that you are going through. And if you haven't yet, trusted Jesus with your life. Entrust your life to him. He is the only one that can give us hope of the deliverance from our sins that brings us into a relationship with God and gives us hope that is both now and forever. Only Jesus can do this. So trust him with your life. Our story today shows us that God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. That God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. Family life can absolutely be chaotic and devastating in this life because of the sin that exists in this world. As we've seen today, though, nothing is beyond God's control. He is able to use these things that we deem as evil and wrong in our lives as good in our lives. Only he is able to do that. Only God can do these things. We might not always see that good right away, right? 
I don't think Joseph did. As he's pleading there with the cupbearer to remember him before Pharaoh and everything that he had experienced up to that point, I'm sure he had a hard time seeing what God was doing, what God was doing in the midst of all of that. And there probably are times where we feel that very way at times. But God is still at work. He's still at work. We might not see it till years down the line. We might not even see it until eternity, till that day when Jesus does return. But it doesn't stop God from being good. It doesn't stop him from being who he is, no matter what we are experiencing in our lives. God is still good. And thankfully, what we experience now, no matter how chaotic it might feel, it is temporary. It is not eternal. Jesus is coming back, and he is going to make everything the way it is supposed to be. And I hope and pray that you have seen today that God reigns over the chaos of our relationships. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.